Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk gun laws and policy today. We're going to start with State Senator Rosemary Bayer, who represents Oxford in the Michigan legislature and who plans to introduce really important gun safety legislation today. Then we're going to talk about the wider context of gun violence in America, far beyond the mass shooting we saw recently in Oxford. How do we solve it? That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Last week's horrific school shooting in Oxford, Michigan, still weighs heavily on all of us here in Metro Detroit. We're all grappling with the knowledge that a 15-year-old high school sophomore could murder four of his schoolmates with a gun that his parents bought him as a Christmas present. It tears at our sense of security, even in the places that should feel the safest. Now that we know more about the shooter, about his actions, the actions of his parents and school officials, we're left wondering, what could have been different? What could have stopped this from happening? State Senator Rosemary Bayer is a Democrat who represents Michigan's 12th state Senate district, which includes Oxford. She happens to also be the co-chair of Michigan's Legislative Firearm Safety and Violence Prevention Caucus. Senator Bayer is introducing legislation today meant to tighten Michigan's gun laws in a way that maybe would bring us to a space of better sensibility about all of this. She joins us now for an exclusive look at what these bills would do. Senator Bayer, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah. So I want to say up front that these bills have been in the works for some time now, and they aren't a direct response to the school shooting that happened in your district last week. But the timing of the introduction of these bills certainly adds some weight to this announcement. So let's talk about what these bills would do. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And as you say, this was actually part of a schedule of introductions that, um, that we constantly manage in that caucus, in the Firearm Safety and Violence Prevention Caucus. And this was the schedule for this bill. We talked a lot about whether this was something we should wait on, and yet when you look at what just happened last week and you think there's data that supports this bill and other bills that we've already introduced um, it very directly in understanding how they can reduce the incidence of gun violence overall and specifically gun deaths. So these are very, very specific pieces of legislation that can make a direct and immediate difference for us. Mm -hmm. So this one for this week um, basically does is reduce the size of the allowable magazine capacity Mm -hmm. for a firearm so that you could only have at most 10 rounds of ammunition in each one. So uh, whereas it might have, it was, it is now 15 and um, we know that mattered Mm. last week, Mm -hmm. Um, that would have been reduced and less, less shots would have been fired, less bullets would have been fired. Mm. Um, uh, would these be retroactive, uh, or this would just be for new gun purchases? In other words, there are guns now that have uh, incredible capacity, um, as you point out. Would this, would this apply to existing guns as well as new purchases? It, only in the sense that if you have uh, a large capacity magazine already, you need to report to your local police that you have it. 
Mm-hmm. You don't have to turn it in. You don't have to give it up, but you have to report that you have it. Um, I, I want to talk just about the, the the wider context of the legislation that you're working on and the kind of things that you're thinking about doing. And, and I want to get you to confront some of the things that we hear from gun advocates about uh, these things. Uh, there are a lot of folks who say that these are infringements on their rights, uh, first of all. They also talk about the, the effectiveness of laws like this. They talk about the fact that criminals, people who are intent on breaking the law, uh, don't care what the law says or or doesn't say, and that if someone like um, like Ethan Crumbly uh, decides that he's going to do what he's going to do, there isn't a practical way for the law to hold him back from that. I wonder how you how you answer that that kind of uh, criticism of this kind of leg- legislation. Uh, well, uh, it sounds like ignorance to me. Um, there is. A, a lot of data, actually, not just one study that show directly the efficacy of these are gun safety laws, actually, that we're talking about. We're not we're not talking about taking away guns. So mm-hmm. there is no infringement on people's rights here. It's not got anything to do with your right to bear firearms, um, which we can talk about another time, perhaps. But um, what what we are working on here in this Michigan Senate and in the Michigan House of Representatives is ways to make gun ownership, make, make sure that people are handling their weapons responsibly and making it safer for people, for kids in school and for all of us. So this particular bill, there, it's, it's already been proven that there, in the states that have uh, laws like this that reduce the size of the magazine, the mass, mass shootings are um, less than half the number in states that don't have it. I mean, it's that it's that direct just for this one. And when you look at the child access protection laws, which simply talk about storage, safely safe storage, mm-hmm. so minors can't get access to a, a firearm, um, a lot of that is accidents, right? We know that. Not mm-hmm. not intentional anything. And um, those those uh, incidences of gun violence dropped just unbelievably. It's, there's all kinds of data to support this. So anyone who suggests that we have adequate laws and we don't need any more is incorrect. The laws that we have don't protect us. Uh, even as we listened to uh, the Oakland County prosecutor last week, uh, as she brought charges to the parents, mm-hmm. she said, we just don't have adequate laws in Michigan to support this. This is all I can do, but we really need laws that are stronger and that are directly related to this particular issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, no, there's lots of data to support all of these things that we're working on are effective. The, the, one of the other big ones is what's called um, extreme risk protection orders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all these bills we've introduced session after session after session not to go anywhere. Um, that one we re- will reintroduce next year, part of this session's plan. Um, but that one is also just has a, has a huge and immediate impact on suicides. So this is about protecting all people for all different reasons, and it's just about safety. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with State Senator Rosemary Baer, a Democrat who represents Michigan's 12th state Senate district, which includes Oxford, Michigan. She is also co-chair of Michigan's Legislative Firearm Safety and Violence Prevention Caucus. We're talking about bills, uh, one bill in particular that will be introduced today uh, to restrict the size of uh, gun magazines, um, uh, the ammunition that goes into guns, uh, to, to limit the possibility uh, of, of people uh, committing mass shootings uh, like the one we saw last week at Oxford, uh, at Oxford High School. So um, I, I want to talk a little more about this package of bills that you are are planning to introduce and something you just said, which is that this is these have been introduced session after session in Lansing and uh, they have not been acted on. What makes you think that right now um, things could be different? Is, is there a possibility that what happened in Oxford will change some minds in the legislature about at least talking about 
these these bills and and these issues? Well, I do. I'm ever hopeful. That's why I keep working on this and have been since I got here. Um, but I will say that uh, in conversations, so Oxford is my district, and in my district, and I've lived there a long time and have talked to many people there. As they started calling and saying, "Okay, thanks for the the prayers and the good thoughts, but what's the action? Right? Mm-hmm. How do we how do we change the script here? How do we do this differently?" And talking with uh, folks that just are in the midst of this tragedy still about what kind of things and what what might they be want to do themselves, right? So I think in the end, um, we're going to continue to push here in the legislature. And uh, Senator Shirky, the Republican leader in the Senate, um, actually agreed to a hearing before COVID that's been delayed multiple times. And he did reiterate that we will have a hearing, not a vote, not didn't commit to a vote, but he didn't commit <laughs> to a hearing. So that is the first crack in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, but in conversation with the people, with our with our people that we serve, they want this. And so I think one of the challenges we're facing in Michigan as a whole, and this is not just about this issue, is that people generally don't associate what we do in Lansing as having much of an impact on their daily lives. Mm-hmm. And this is a good example of something that does. Mm-hmm. It has a huge impact. If you are, by some horrible circumstance, caught in the middle of a gun violence tragedy, it probably could have been prevented. Right. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah. There's so many, so many different pieces of legislation here and other things that we're working on to change this. And so talking with them and saying, look, we think you are going to have to help us convince the majority party that this has to happen, that you demand that they do this. And, and whoever your legislators are in the Senate and the House – have that conversation and make it very clear that you're going to elect people that will vote for these pieces of legislation that will protect our kids in school. Hmm. And, you know, it's an interesting conversation, and they had interesting answers to that. So that's a very Republican <laughs> part of my district. You know, mm-hmm. I lived up there, and I, uh, uh, it's, you know, the whole northern part of Oakland County is, is that. And yet this, is not, this should not be a partisan issue. This is about safety. Yeah. So it's time for us to start to stop talking about the partisan piece and get to work on making things safer. I, I do want to also give you a chance to talk about what's going on in this part of your district, in this community. Um, you know, when things like this happen, there's a lot of attention for uh, a short period of time afterward. But the people who live in the communities where this happened, um, they don't get to move on to something else. They, 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 have, to, they have to find a way to, to, you know, I guess in, in some way restore some normalcy uh, in a community that's been really badly disrupted by something like this. And, and I wonder if you can tell us, you know, a week later um, what – what is happening and what people in Oxford are telling you about the way that they're trying to, f- to figure this all out and, and to, to piece back together the sense of safety and community that, uh, that was so badly shattered uh, at the high school. I will say it's, it's, um, it is interesting to talk with them and hear them ask for help. Right there, I, I, and because like I said, I, I, um, you know, this is my first time in office, and three years ago, four years ago, when I started running for office, I would knock on doors and ask people, introduce myself, and ask people what they thought was important. But the first question they would ask me was, "There's a Senate in Michigan." I mean, I, wow. you know, there's a there's a an opportunity listening to them of awareness mm-hmm. that there is a potential to make this better. Now there. Things are still really rough in Oxford, and and so we don't initiate any of these kind of conversations there. When they call my office and want a meeting, Mm -hmm. we are absolutely always available to them. And so we'll talk about whatever they want to talk about, including this. But most of our conversations now are still about what's the hotline number again for mental health? Is there going to be someone here? Is there a way I can do it over the phone or on a text? Or, you know, those, and, and how do we how do we make sure that our community stays whole? Hmm. You know, so they're really focused more still on that part of the world. The, the, the last funeral is today. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, this is going to take time. I mean, this is a huge thing. I, you know, have, I know so many people in that school system and relatives in high school, in that school. And, you, you know, it's, it's, you're still just not talking. You're still not over it. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I, I, I also want to give you a chance to talk about the um, the wider context of uh, the kind of response, I guess, that we that we have to something like this. Gun laws are, are, are and gun safety laws are one aspect of it, but there are so many things that I think were highlighted um, by what what happened in the days and the weeks in the hours before uh, Ethan Crumbly did what he did that suggest a, a possible legislative response. Uh, and I wonder if you've begun to talk with colleagues in Lansing about those things and the opportunity to make changes in other areas uh, that could be just as, as uh, important. Well, I will say, and, and really we've been trying, working on this since, well, for the last three years, at least, maybe longer, um, in enhancing the system that we have for mental health um, as a state. Uh, most of that got taken apart, you know, a long time ago, right? We can we can go back to, to Governor Engler and talk about what happened to the mental health system here, but we haven't really repaired that yet. And so um, we've started uh, my first year uh, in in uh, additional funding for mental health resources for school districts, but nowhere near what they need. But communities as a whole need more. And so uh, at Oakland County, at the Oakland County level, we are working on um, proposals for uh, mental health facilities within the county, uh, not just for, for kids, but specifically for separately for children and, and adults so that there's a place for people to go to get the, the help they actually need. We're really short on that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's pretty widely known. It's just been a question of, you know, how do we do that? So we're trying to work on now, especially there's opportunity with some additional funding coming from outside um, that might be able to boost us in this infrastructure piece, mm-hmm. at least, right, mm-hmm. to get started on some of these things. Um, and luckily, you know, living in Oakland County, we have an advantage, too. We have a, uh, a density of population and, and revenue that might allow us to be, to be, you know, sort of in front of that and show people how to do it. We also have um, in the caucus, in the Firearm Safety and Violence Prevention Caucus, we have, sh- have put a lot of focus in this last year on interruption. Mm-hmm. So knowing that we struggle with the legislation that we've introduced over, the, over these years and continue to do, um, interruption programs are working in a different way. So intervention or interruption. So there's a pilot in Grand Rapids. There's a program in Ingham County now. We got money in this year's budget for Oakland County to start a pilot there. So starting to, to you know, look at policing differently and look at how, um, in, in my old world, before this job, uh, one of the long-term research projects that I was involved in um, we 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 ended up doing a, a system that connected uh, nonprofits to each other's services. And mm-hmm. after the pilot ran for a while, we checked to see who was using it and how. And the biggest user was the state police. Mm. And as I looked into why that happened, it's because most of their calls to go somewhere, you know, go there's there's something happening at this house, go there. Um, most of those, as in like 85 percent are not traditional police work. They're more traditional social work or counseling. And so how do we know that, right? We can't put a counselor in every jar, a car that goes out. We can't, you know, how do we know what to do? What's the right tool? as So so it's really an interesting and new thing to start working on, which makes a lot of sense. And overall, it doesn't involve weapons at all which is a good way to approach things most of the time, yeah. you know. So yeah. so I think that's another big piece for all of us to focus on going forward. Um, what other tools do we have in our boxes that we can use uh, to, to, to intervene and to stop a lot of the gun violence from happening before it does? Yeah. Okay. State Senator Rosemary Bayer, it was really great to have you here uh, to talk about uh, this really important legislation that you plan to introduce today and in the coming months. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Have a great day. You too. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, mass shootings get a lot of attention when they happen. 
and they spark lots of debate about our gun laws, but they are just a small fraction of America's gun violence epidemic. We're going to hear from one of the country's top experts on gun violence about what the bigger problem looks like and what the possible solutions are. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're all still shocked and heartbroken by the mass shooting last week in Oxford. These are the kinds of events that spark these bigger conversations that we're now trying to have about how we address gun violence in this country. They shake us by the shoulders and force us to stare at the gun violence epidemic square in the face. But they also make up a tiny fraction of the problem that we have here in America. Gun violence is endemic in this country, which is home to more guns than people. The violence from guns happens every hour of every day. And I don't really need to tell you that if you live here in Southeast Michigan. The city of Detroit is a daily reminder of the violence that we have just become accustomed to in America that is caused by people with guns. According to the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence, more than 300 people are shot every day in America, and 106 of them die. Think about that for a second. That's 116,000 people each year. We want to spend the rest of the hour today talking about the nature of gun violence in America and what we can possibly do to make all of those numbers I was just talking about a lot smaller. And to help us do that, I'd like to welcome a leading expert on these issues. Dr. James Allen Fox is a professor of criminology, law, and public policy at Northeastern University and a leading expert on gun violence in America. Dr. Fox, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much, Stephen. So first, I would love to get your reaction to what we saw last week here in Southeast Michigan in Oxford and the questions or observations you have as a criminologist. Sure. Well, I... <clears throat> The problem with when we have these high profile events like that is that people often start believing that this is the norm. In fact, we often hear that school shootings are the new normal. Well, they're not. So first understand that our schools are safe. Yes, this is a senseless, horrific tragedy, but it's not happening all the time. It's not happening everywhere. Uh, and we start thinking of that we go down a rabbit hole and perhaps uh, implement procedures that sometimes do more harm than good. So let's first understand that, let's take for example, um, kids killed at school. Uh, on an average year, there's just under seven students killed at school by a, by a classmate or an intruder mm -hmm. using a gun. Now that's horrible, of course, for the seven students and their families and the communities. But let's try to put that in perspective that we have 55 million school children in this country. So the, the risk is, is rather low. Uh, in terms of active shooter events where people die at schools, one to two a year in the United States. Compare that to over 100,000 schools. Now, I don't want to minimize the pain and suffering that occurs, but this is not an epidemic. Um, in fact, um, 
when you compare those seven students who die each year at their schools to the fact that 30 students are killed each year commuting to school, not by gun violence, but in bicycle accidents mm -hmm. while they're traveling to school mm -hmm. as a pedestrian in a school bus. We don't have, for example, this country, a requirement for bicycle helmets for, for minors. Uh, yes, half the states do, but half the states don't. We want to protect our children. Perhaps that's one of the easy ways is to have a natural bicycle helmet law. Mm. So there's a lot of things we could do. Or, or for example, we have um, many, many more times kids were killed each year uh, in swimming pool accidents. We need more uh, lifeguards at pools rather than armed guards at schools. Mm -hmm. So yes, this is very, very high profile when it happens. Makes it, it's, it dominates the news for, for days after days after days, but let's not, let's try to keep it in perspective. Yeah. So, so here's the thing that for me makes something like the Oxford shooting really stand out and really get our attention. And, and I, and I really love that you started with putting it in some perspective that this doesn't happen all the time. This doesn't happen everywhere. But the fact that it did happen and the way it happened in this case is reflective, I think, of how out of control gun distribution and possession and use is in the wider culture. In other words, you can look at the particulars of this incident and see echoes of the other things that are wrong, starting with the fact that a 15-year-old was able to get his hands on a gun to go and do this at school. Now, if he'd gone and done it at the corner store or at a park, we would be just as outraged because it's the, it's the violence itself that gets our attention. And that violence is part of an ecosystem in this country that is very permissive of and very tolerant of the number of guns that exist, the people who have them, and the things that they decide to do with them. I agree 100%. By the way, since you mentioned playgrounds or parks, uh, we have more kids who are killed uh, in playgrounds or parks, even with, even with guns, than in schools. Mm -hmm. Schools are safe. Mm -hmm. In schools, kids have supervision, uh, uh, programming, they're with adults, uh, as opposed to when they're after school, for example, which is a much more dangerous time for kids. But in terms of guns, yes, absolutely. As you in, indicated in your opening, there are more guns than people. Not that everyone has one. Uh, it's just that some people have many. Right. Uh, and, and, in, and in terms of the shooter uh, in your school, in the Oxford school, uh, it would be illegal. It was illegal for him to purchase one, mm -hmm. but not to possess one. Of course, we, we are rightly looking at the responsibility of parents in that situation. And, uh, you know, I, and I, in fact, I support the prosecution of the parents. But let me also say this that what is most likely to happen if you don't secure a gun in your home or even have, have your child have access to it, even as a, as a Christmas gift, mm -hmm. the most like, more likely thing to happen is that that gun will be used against you or someone else in your family, much more likely than that kid will take that gun to school and use it against a classmate. And if that doesn't deter a parent, the prospect of, or of a child committing suicide or killing a sibling or killing one of the, or you, if that doesn't deter a parent, well, I don't think prosecution will hmm. yeah. in this kind of event. So I support it, but let's not also think that's going to send a message out there to parents that they've got to now secure their guns. They should secure their guns because of suicide, a child's teenage suicide. That's, the bigger issue, actually. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things about the gun culture in our, in our country is a political one, of course. If you, for many, many gun owners, 
The Second Amendment, protecting their rights, is the number one issue. They will not vote for a candidate if that candidate is not a pro-gun person. It's a litmus test. However, for people on the other side, including me, I'm a, I, I'm very much in favor of gun control. I will. That's not going to sway my vote. I voted. I have voted in the past for for candidates who uh, are pro-gun, but it's the, it's the balance of what their policies and their and their, uh, and their platform is. I was a you know, big supporter of Bill Clinton. <laughs> he was not anti-gun. <laughs> so one side uses guns as a litmus test. The other side does, and that's why we have such uh, a problem with doing anything legislatively uh, in Washington. I'm talking, I'm talking with Dr. James Allen Fox. He's a professor of criminology, law, and public policy at Northeastern University. He is a leading expert on gun violence in America. Um, he has published 18 books, dozens of journal and magazine articles, and hundreds of freelance columns in newspapers around the country, primarily in the areas of multiple murder, youth crime, school and campus violence, workplace violence, and capital punishment. Uh, we're talking about uh, the gun culture in America. We're talking about gun laws in America and what we might do to create a different kind of environment for ourselves, one in which the daily gun violence that we see in all kinds of places in our country is not sort of uh, part of the, 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 the wallpaper, is not just part of life in America. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Call and tell us what you think we need to do about the prevalence of guns in America and gun violence. Uh, what do you want lawmakers to do? What are you comfortable with lawmakers doing that they're not doing to try to prevent gun violence? Talk to us not just about gun laws, but the spectrum of other kinds of legislation that might reduce violence or the tendency for violence in America. As always, the, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start with Mike in Oxford. Mike, welcome to the show. Are you there, Mike? Yes, I am. Yeah, go ahead. Um, can we repeal the Dickey Amendment? I think that would be a good place to start. I think that has hobbled us for years. Uh, I feel very strongly about this, especially now, because I am an Oxford High School graduate, mm -hmm. and so are several of my family members. Mm. Uh, I didn't know anybody involved with this, but when we have a legal firearm that was purchased legally in a local store, and then this can happen. It, it just seems like I, I know your guest is saying that it's uh, not as prevalent as it seems, but you never think it's going to happen in your town until it does. Mm -hmm. So my question is, can we repeal the Dickey Amendment and what would it take to actually do that? Yeah. So we should start, I think, with an explanation for our other listeners uh, about what the Dickey Amendment is, uh, and it's a provision in the 1996 uh, omnibus spending bill, which mandated that, quote, none of the funds made available for injury prevention and control at the CDC can be used to advocate or promote gun control. It is commonly understood, as I would, would understand it, I guess, it, as a prohibition on the kinds of government research into gun violence and gun possession and, and distribution uh, that you would see the CDC do in other areas. In other words, we've seen the CDC be very, very proactive in determining the dangers of and the, the, the needed response to the COVID-19 epidemic. They couldn't do the same thing with regard to gun violence uh, because of this amendment. Uh, Dr. Fox, I want to first make sure that I'm explaining that correctly. I'm sure you understand this much, much better yes. than I do. But then, but then to have you react to, to Mike, who, who lives in the community where this just happened a few weeks ago, and is concerned that, that, that this perhaps is one of the things that's in the way of us coming up with more sensible policy. Well, I, th I think the, 
the amendment certainly was ill-advised, uh, Ill but let's also understand that gun research is going on. In fact, even at the CDC, there's a, a new request for proposals uh, for research on firearms violence. Uh, their research has been funded by the National Institute of Justice for years. In fact, I'm just finishing a three-year grant on, on public mass shootings. So I agree that it, it, it symbolically is a bad thing and it's too bad because the CDC prior to the Dickey Amendment was doing some great research on gun homicides, uh, but I think they're getting back to it. So at least they're funding the research that others will be doing. As far as policy changes, I'll, I'm more concerned about the TR Amendment, which I'll explain. The TR Amendment is one that, that at one, the, the, the uh, ATF, uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, maintains database on the source of gun, where guns are purchased. And if a gun shows up in a crime, they can trace it to where it was sold initially. Uh, a lot of research was being done using those data. In fact, I was using the tr gun tracing data uh, in some legislation, in some, I'm sorry, in some um, litigation against the gun industry uh, that would show, for example, that 1% of gun dealers were responsible for over half the gun crimes. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I'm not saying that necessarily that those 1% of gun dealers are nefarious or not doing their job correctly, uh, but it's a possibility and that should be investigated. Mm -hmm. But the TR amendment all of a sudden said you can't, that, that those data cannot be used by researchers like me. Uh, it can only be used to investigate a crime as opposed to understanding patterns like this. Right. I would like to see that that amendment repealed because obviously that's that's an avenue to make sure we get with, that we deal with the rogue gun dealers sure. who are not following the law. Yeah. Um, and it's not just rogue gun dealers. I mean, there there are, there are gun dealers who are who are part of the pipeline between legal gun distribution and sales and mm -hmm. illegal possession. But you also have a lot of individuals in this country who are part of that, maybe not intentionally, but through their carelessness. Yeah. And it's worth noting that when these crimes are committed with guns each day in our country, the guns that are used in those crimes were at some point sold legally to someone. Yeah. It's not as though criminals go and rob the gun factory or mm -hmm. or the gun store to get these. There is this connection between legal purchase and possession and illegal possession and use. And we, we don't talk much about how to how to zero in on that and how to regulate that in a way that that lessens the possibility of. Plus let's also know that that uh, for example, a recent national survey of gun owners and where did they, how and where did they get their most recent gun purchase, that over 20% purchased their gun privately without a background check. So the, the background check system uh, isn't perfect. We know that because there have been some flaws in it, mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it does primarily do what it's supposed to do. However, you can buy a gun uh, at a private sale at a gun at a, at a gun show, not all, not you know, there are dealers, there are sellers at gun shows who are not licensed. Uh, of course, then there's ghost guns. So there's lots of different ways that guns are acquired, other than through legal, legitimate means through a gun dealer, and that's something we have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Dr. James Allen Fox about gun policy and gun laws. We are also going to continue to hear from you both on social media and on the phones. Sam and Mount Clemens, Will and Ferndale, Mindy in Oxford. We'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. And again, you can go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to work those into the conversation as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
You're listening to this right today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Dr. James Allen Fox. He's a professor of criminology, law, and public policy with Northeastern University and one of our country's leading experts on gun violence. We're talking about gun policy, gun laws, the things that I think we are reminded of when something like the Oxford High School shooting happens, as it did a few weeks ago. We're talking about what the opportunity is to maybe think about these things a little differently, maybe institute different policies and legislation that would make these kinds of events less likely. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, the comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go next to Mindy in Oxford. Mindy. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my, my thought, my question is about how the NRA and other gun groups rate our politicians, our local politicians, and they are under a lot of pressure to get 100% rating um, from these gun groups. And they are also challenged to sponsor a certain number of pro-gun legislation. And the, the NRA and other gun groups define what they can vote against and how they vote. Data, everything else is not part of it. It's just um, if you vote for this, you lose your rating. If you don't, even like bird, uh, migratory bird laws, it's all d- dictated by these groups and this need for 100% rating to get their endorsement. Mm. Mm. Is there anything that can be done about that? Like, <clears throat> Great question, um, Mindy. And, and you know, the gun lobby is, at least historically, one of the most powerful, at least in Washington, and it does shape a lot of the the policy and law that that we have. Uh, Dr. Fox, I wonder if you can talk about what, what Mindy is asking about, but also talk about the current circumstances that the NRA faces. It is in a different place today than it probably has been ever in its in its lifetime, and it's a little less powerful than I think we're used to it being. Right. It had it has seen a reduction in its power and its finances, et cetera. But that doesn't mean, however, that pro-gun groups uh, still don't have, it doesn't mean that they don't have the power that they do have. And we can't obviously stop any group from, from raiding politicians. Um, you know, actually Brady, the Brady uh, folks do it as well. Of course, the, the rating is the opposite from an NRA type of rating. Uh, it's, a, it's it's sad. I mentioned at the very beginning how how there are so many people whose vote depends on what a politician does regarding guns in terms of being pro-gun as opposed to uh, we don't tend to anti-gun folks like myself don't tend to seek out candidates just be, just based on that one issue. It's one of many issues. The only solution there really is is the electorate. Is that if there if there are politicians who are continuing to kowtow to to the gun industry, to the manufacturers, to the to the gun rights groups, we've got to vote them out of office. But that's <laughs> but that's really the only solution. We can't obviously we can't muzzle any organization, prevent them to do whatever ratings they want to do. Sure. One of the problems is that I, I think that the NRA is is a lobby group that is tied closely to the gun industry and seems to reflect more of its priorities than even the priorities of gun owners themselves. And I'm not saying that most gun owners wouldn't support the NRA or or believe that the the things that they're doing are are, are right, but I I think there is this distinction that's important in our politics and in our governance about the power of corporate lobbying versus individuals. I think if if you had gun owners speaking through primarily through the NRA, the policies might look a little different than than they do because of the gun industry. Yeah, well we have that in terms of the, the big farm uh, uh, pharmacy same I mean, thing the right. pharmaceuticals same thing. Doesn't mean it can't be uh, impacted. Here in Massachusetts for example, uh, our state, which has really some of the strictest gun laws in the country and lowest gun homicide rate, uh, Smith and Wesson uh, is, is uh, local. Well, it has been located in Massachusetts, and the state decided basically that we're going to force them not to sell assault weapons 
because you can't, you, we, we're, we've abandoned assault weapons in the state, but that ban did not say that they couldn't be produced by Smith and Wesson. But now, as state going after Ms. Smith and Wesson, now now Smith and Wesson is deciding to leave the state. Mm-hmm. So there are ways that we can impact the gun manufacturers. And of course, the other way is is to reduce the is to eliminate the immunity that the gun industry has had. Um, you know, years ago, many many of the concessions from the gun manufacturers came through through lawsuits, lawsuits in Boston, in New York, in California, uh, that sued the gun manufacturers. Now, that was successful in terms of getting settlements and getting concessions. Unfortunately, Congress passed law that, that prevents those kind of lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, three Can I say one other thing that, yeah, that, that I think is important? You know, we've seen in this year a, a surge in gun sales you know part of it of course was covid related and mm-hmm. uh, there was just people worrying that that some uh, someone who's was gonna some intruder was gonna come in their home try to steal their toilet paper when there was a shortage mm-hmm. um and uh then there was some uh, surge in gun sales because when biden was ahead in the polls uh that some pro-gun folks believed wrongly that Biden would somehow eliminate the Second Amendment and they had to go get their guns now. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, these guns that are being that were purchased too often are used not just in stranger-related crimes or school crimes, but in the against the family. We saw a tremendous increase in the last four years in intimate partner homicides. Guns being used against a loved one, a uh, spouse, uh, also against fa- other family members. So what's happening is these guns are being purchased ostensibly to protect the family. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, those same guns get used um, against the family member in the heat of an argument. And during the during the uh, pandemic, when families were cloistered together, uh, hour after hour after hour, we saw this big rise in in homicide within the family mm-hmm. using these very same guns that were purchased to protect the family. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Sam in Mount Clemens. Sam, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen. How are you? Sure. Great. Uh, um, great to hear from you. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, real quick, or I'll try to be quick. Um, I, I agree with your guest about the political aspects of this. Um, I think it's ridiculous. I am an independent. I am a gun owner and a very concerned parent. Hmm. Um, I, I can't stand it that people vote for somebody based on one issue. I think that's just ridiculous. Um, that being said, when I was a kid, my dad had guns. And I'm in my 40s now. I never thought once to ever get to his firearms hmm. or anything like that. And then Columbine happened. Okay. Now, fast forward, um, I have an eight-year-old daughter. My guns are locked away in safes that nobody can get to them mine. They're electronic. They're uh, everything else. I want to go more towards the cognitive thing, mental health. Um, so what happened in 99 and when all this started uh, transpiring with these school shootings, I think um, us just jumping to, like, I agree there's a problem with guns mm-hmm. i think people should not have guns that don't they shouldn't have guns if that makes any sense you know um i think we do need a national database of that um i i can't stress enough how sad i am and sickened about the school shootings mm-hmm. but being a gun owner i am responsible for my firearm yeah so um, so sam I, I really appreciate your calling and sharing that perspective because because you're a gun owner, and I think one of the things that that we have a real problem with is the culture. There are there are many, many, many responsible gun owners out there. I mean, there, there are lots of people who who own guns for totally legitimate reasons and are completely responsible with them. Our, our, our problem, of course, is that we have a lot of other people who are not responsible, and that the laws in the country are are not focused on dealing with uh, 
the, the inappropriate use of these guns or the inappropriate sale of, of these guns. And it, it kind of pits responsible gun owners against uh, against uh, people who want to, you know, create better better gun safety laws. I mean, it, it's a weird dynamic. Uh, Dr. Fox, we only have about a minute left, but I want to give you a chance to react to what Sam's saying as yeah. well. Yeah, I, I think this is the slippery slope idea that that if the gun if gun rights folks, if they if they give an inch, we'll all take a mile. Right. That's not going to happen. I mean, there was this fear when Biden gets elected, the Second Amendment will be repealed. There's no, uh, the same thing was when, when Hillary Clinton was running, that she's going to take away, take away all your guns. That's not going to happen. Uh, having responsible change in, in gun legislation, and there's many things we can do and should do, doesn't mean we will not have a Second Amendment. And unfortunately, the fear of one of a large group of people that you can't do anything because that that will just lead to the elimination of the Second Amendment. That's stopping us from doing responsible things. Yeah. We talk about it, you know, in, in the wake of a mass shooting, we hear all this talk about we need to do X, Y, and Z. It doesn't get done, unfortunately. And it doesn't get done because of this concern about this slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dr. James Allen Fox, really great to have you here with us on My Detroit pleasure. today. Thanks so much for joining. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about Michigan's new auto insurance law with an analyst who's taken a deep dive into the successes and failures of those reforms. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station.